Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome to The Interpreter Radio Show. This is Bruce Webster with my co-host Chris Fredrickson. And <clears throat> since, since the news suddenly cut off, we're pretty sure that we're supposed to be on the air right now. We wait and see if something else breaks back in, but hey, who cares? Uh, tonight for Come Follow Me, we're going to talk about Ezekiel, one of the interesting prophets. Uh, Ezekiel was carried off to Babylon at the first invasion of Babylon. And a lot of members of the church don't realize that before the start of the Book of Mormon, uh, Babylon came, they deposed and took the existing king back to captivity. Zechariah, who we all know about, was actually a puppet king placed on the throne by Babylon. Uh, and Ezekiel got taken back to Babylon and, and got basically ended up spending the rest of his time preaching to the Jews who were in captivity. Uh, there was an initial group that were brought up, and then the rest, those who survived the second Babylonian invasion uh, and the destruction of Jerusalem and, Israel, and Judah, really, as kingdom of Judah as a, a nation, uh, would be added to that. So Ezekiel's whole job is to preach to Israel and to tell them to get their act together or things are going to be even worse than they are. Uh, and so we start in Ezekiel 1 through 3 with Ezekiel's call. Now, the, this starts with Ezekiel's vision of, of, of these four angels. Uh, and uh, the uh, Robert Alter in his translation says, basically 2,500 years Bible commentators have not been able to piece together actually accurately exactly what Ezekiel is saying. So it's it's a good thing not to worry about. I, I was telling Chris before the show started that I have a grandson who's serving a mission and has gotten into the Old Testament and he wanted to talk to me and called me up and immediately started talking about this angel in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. And I said, Adwin, there are other places that are probably much better for you to start <laughs> in your analysis of the Old Testament. Uh but what we do have here is basically this is Ezekiel's theophany. Much like Isaiah 6, much like Lehi, this is Ezekiel's call as a prophet. Uh, it, there are actually some parallels with Isaiah 6 because you have the angels and then you have the glory of the Lord himself. Uh, and uh, Ezekiel being told, you're going to be a watchman unto the house of Israel. Chris. <clears throat> Um, we don't know a ton about him. He was certainly from a priestly family. And so um, he's going to get the call. He's going to, once he gets this call, we're going to see Ezekiel is going to be mute for <clears throat> quite a number of years, actually almost until Jerusalem is destroyed. And he is prophesying that Jerusalem will be destroyed uh, at times that the Lord um, has him do that. But then once it is destroyed, he's going to sort of change his message to kind of give, in some respects, a message of hope to the people to look forward to this glorious day when Israel will be restored. But there's also a good mix in there of you need to repent and you need to get your lives in order and you need to prepare yourselves. And we would, this is a kind of phraseology from our day, but you need to make yourself temple ready. 
so that you're worthy to get back into the temple of our God. And there's these beautiful chapters uh, that describe the temple and, <clears throat> you know, and that give some symbolic, uh, better understanding symbolically of what the temple should represent in the lives of the Israelites of his day and in our lives. Uh, when he was in captivity, it wasn't necessarily a hideous circumstance for all people. He seems to have had his own home during captivity. Uh, there were a lot of individuals that worked their way into positions of power during the Babylonian captivity. This was, you know, the cream of the crop is sort of going to be pulled out initially. And then, of course, they are all anticipating and hoping for, of course, being able to restore and go back to Jerusalem. But then when that second wave and then, of course, the uh, diaspora is going to, you know, begin at that point. And well, it's going to it's going to come after the Assyrian and then after this one, um, then the people, it's a completely different mindset for them. It's that hope that they will be restored to glorious Israel and to the temple that meant so much to them. And so Ezekiel is going to take up that message as well here and share it with the people. The uh, We have the theme of a book again, uh, Ezekiel is told to consume the book, uh, but it's, it's, again, strongly parallels what Lehi goes through, uh, where there's a book that he's to read from. Uh, again, this is actually pretty much in the, the identical time frame, uh, where, where both Ezekiel and Lehi are being shown a book. Ezekiel symbolically eats it to, to gain his mission. Uh, Lehi in First uh, Nephi uh, 1 and 2 sees the book, reads it, and basically pronounces his woes upon the house of Israel and upon Jerusalem. And it, there, there are some <clears throat> interesting parallels between the, the, the prophecies that both are making about the wickedness of the kingdom of Judah, the destruction that's going to come upon them. Uh, <clears throat> in this case, as mentioned, Ezekiel's already in Babylon, and Lehi will be commanded to flee Jerusalem with his family. Uh, and will be ultimately led to the new world. The and we have early on a precursor to one of the themes that we tend to associate the most with Ezekiel, uh, where the Lord calls him as a watchman mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and says basically <clears throat> sets sets forth this basic concept, which is which is addressed in greater detail when he gets chapters thirty three and thirty four which is the Lord calls his prophets to warn the people. And if the prophets do their job, they're held guiltless. Uh, you have uh, Jacob in his sermon at the temple in the book of Jacob, where he says, I'm here to rid my, my garments of your bloods, my garment of your blood. And I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong and what's going to happen if you don't repent. And now I am free of guilt. Well, this is the same thing that the Lord is saying both in uh, Ezekiel 3 and then later in 33, you know, if the if the watchman, the one who is called, uh, correctly proclaims and warns of the danger, then if the wicked die in their sins, uh, there's the, the watchman is held guiltless. And contrary-wise, if the wicked repent <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and live... Uh, <clears throat> All the better, but in a, in any case, a watchman is guiltless. This is, I think, important for our day. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> there is an information theory, father of whom was Claude Shannon, uh, 
there is a maxim that's that's a technical maxim, but is applied in a sort of a real world setting, which is that the value of information is directly proportional to its improbability. In other words, if I tell you the sun's going to rise tomorrow, that's not a very meaningful piece of information. Uh, if I tell you that the Earth is going to be hit by a giant comet tomorrow, and that's accurate, that's that's an extremely important piece of information. Uh, so you have this role of the prophets that, and and we see this, I think, a lot in the modern church. Uh, this this sort of pushback. Why can't why can't the first presidency just make nice and be nice and get along with everyone and so on and so forth? That's not the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet is to tell us uncomfortable truths. It is to be that watchman on the tower, and that's exactly what you know we have in chapter three, and we're going to get to chapter thirty three in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> the the value of information is directly proportional to, frankly, how uncomfortable it makes us, uh, because it's saying, "Okay, this is this is what you need to do," and it's. Uh, I've I've said <laughs> many times on this radio show. The uh, that that and I, I try to avoid certain labels, but I'll, I'll simply say the the similarity between very liberal and very conservative from a theological sense, Latter Day Saints, is that they both do what they think the prophet would do if he had all the facts. Uh, <laughs> it's like. We know better. We know better than a prophet. You know, these are these are old men have gone astray. You, almost all the fundamentalist groups start with a something went wrong somewhere along the way in a chain of prophets, and we're the ones holding the true truth. And mm-hmm. uh, on the socially liberal side, it's like you know these these guys are out of date. They're just not with it or whatever. And in the meantime, you have these watchmen on the tower. We're two weeks away from general conference and. I suspect we'll have more talks that are going to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and that people's, you know, people will get upset uh, on, on both ends of the theological spectrum over right. what they have to say. Chris. Um, let's kind of jump in. I will just sketch really quickly. We can start here real quickly with one, then two, and then three. I do want to spend a lot of time on three because I think it's so valuable for us today. But there's a lot of symbolic actions in Ezekiel. It's not just, you know, symbolism and we're trying to discern, but he actually acts it out a lot of times. And it's very hard. This whole idea of ingesting a book, of course, is, the, is of course, to help us understand, to internalize the message and the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're going to see these symbolic actions. So some of this stuff seems quite bizarre to us. When he's going to put on a backpack and he's going to leave every night, um, you know, trying to teach the people that, you know, they will be driven out of Jerusalem. They will not be able to return to that temple. So we see these symbolic actions all over, and there are some really good commentaries that help us better understand those. But I would suggest that the three overriding themes in the book of Ezekiel, the first one, and this is just hammered home over and over and over again, is that God is sovereign and he is completely in control. And you see, this is where mankind so often goes astray. It's like, um, well, here's my resume and um, whatever. There is no God um, and I know better. But reality-wise, if you lined up your resume against God's resume, 
you're an absolute fool to think you know better than God. And so this is what God is going to do. And he says it over and over again. He says, I'm going to do this, thus and such, and I'm going to do it in a way that people will absolutely know that it's the hand of, the, of God. Um, and so that they will know that there is a God in heaven. And that is that is the primary basis, you know, upon which people's testimony has to be founded, that there is a God in heaven. It's the most simple, basic principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a God. And then we can go on, there's a God that hears and answers our prayers, but the notion or idea that there is a God and that he is sovereign, that he's omnipotent and that he's omniscient. And so we see this throughout these chapters. The second thing we're going to see here is that there's a lot of judgment that God's judgment will fall upon the wicked and particularly those that turn their backs on God's when they had the truth, it may be some time before God responds to their cries for help. And so he's going to make it perfectly clear to the individuals here that you are free to choose. You know, we talk about this all the time at church, you're free to choose, but you are not free to determine the consequences of your actions. And there are consequences associated with violating God's laws. And it's that simple. And he wants individuals to understand that because he loves them. Because he wants them to find the joy and happiness in life. And he wants them to progress here in this life and in all eternity with that great promise, you know, to become as he is. And so he he will do these things to correct us. And he, there will be judgments. And they will feel the pain and suffering because of the bad decisions they have made. But then the lovely thing is there's so much hope here, particularly... <clears throat> you know, the promise to them that, you know, that they can be restored and renewed as they repent, but also that glorious promise of what lies in the future when those temples will be rebuilt, when all those that are righteous will have access to those temples and will go there into that, you know, the Lord's university, where they will be educated for in the things that really matter in the things of eternity. And so it's also filled with hope with the restoration of the house of Israel. Now, this is a powerful theme. If you think of all the, you know, when this was given and where we are today, over the years, this has to be one of the, perhaps one of the few things sometimes that Jews particularly could hold on to because they have suffered immeasurably because of bad decisions and oftentimes because of rejection of the Savior. You know, whatever it is, but we all suffer from bad decisions. There's no doubt about it. We all suffer from rejecting Jesus Christ sometimes in our lives. And so, but there has been much suffering in people's lives who do those things. And, you know, sometimes we bring those things upon ourselves. And so, you know, God's going to give us hope that we can be restored and renewed and that in the end, all will be glorious and wonderful. And of course, if at with with proper worthiness that we can live with him again and so we see all of that in ezekiel chapter one chapter one is this fascinating vision and you know as it describes this this creature you know i looked and beheld a whirlwind and a fire unfolding uh came the likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance a likeness of a man four faces four wings i mean we see this very interesting creature what's he's symbolically trying to i would suggest describe glory power might um you know uh, that are bound up um um in um um, in, in these creatures and the glory of God and the glory of God's throne. And so he's going to do that in chapter one. Chapter one is highly symbolic. As you know, Bruce mentioned, there's a lot here that we do not understand. So let's go to chapter two, unless you have anything on chapter one, Bruce. Okay. So chapter two, here is um, Ezekiel, and he's called here to take the word of the Lord to Israel. And 
I, th- I think this is one of the demarcations that helps us understand who a prophet is. You remember Isaiah, when he's called, what does he say? He says, here am I, you know, send me. Um, and these men are willing to step up to a task that is going to be very difficult to fulfill. It's going to be challenging. It's going to cause them a lot of sorrow, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain because they are going to be rejected. They're going to be abused. Some of them are going to be killed, um, you know, for standing up for God and for his cause. And yet he is, um, you know, called and um, and he is going to accept that call. He calls him son, son of man. Now, we see that a lot. And he's reminding him, you are a man. I am a God. So he calls him here, son of man. I send thee to the children of Israel, um, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They have transgressed against me unto this very day. They are impudent children and stiff hearted. Thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord God. And whether they will hear or forbear, they shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. Now that's interesting too, isn't it? What does it mean to say, you know, they'll know that there's been a prophet among them? In some sense, I think that regardless how they treat him, they recognize his power. They recognize something exceptional about Ezekiel. And if they recognize that and then they reject him, as chapter 3 talks about, that's going to put them in a very, in a, in a very bad place. But they are going to recognize him as, um, you know, a representative of God. But he says, um, you know, that plenty of people will reject you. And so that's his mission. That's what he's called to do. Now, I don't know many young men, 1920, he's probably, many, many scholars think he's about 30 when he gets this call. And he's going to preach for, you know, at least two decades to these uh, people. Um, that um, imagine getting that kind of a mission call. Well, here's what I want you to do. And here's what you're going to encounter. And yet he's going to step up and he's going to fulfill that task. And so um, he's going to, you know, get him um, uh, ready. And then now he's going to describe the watchman on the tower. I'll turn that over. We'll we'll both talk about that. Go ahead, okay. Bruce. Uh, and in chapter three, we have him handing him the book and eating the book, which, as I said, the, the whole book motif parallels what Lehi goes through at almost the same time, uh, but back in Jerusalem. But it also parallels John Revelator, uh, who in Revelation chapter 10 sees the little book with the the list of woes and asks for it and eats it. And as exactly as uh, Ezekiel says, it's sweet as honey in his mouth, but John notes it turns bitter in his belly. Uh, And John is, unlike Ezekiel specifically, in fact, it's interesting comparing contrast, John is told he's going to preach to all these nations and tongues and people. Ezekiel's told, oh, you don't have to worry about all these foreigners said, you're, you're going to preach to the Jews. You already know their language. Uh, so you're going to talk to them. Uh, and to Chris's point about some of the highly symbolic stuff that Ezekiel does in the book as part of his preaching, we get back to Nephi's comments uh, and Jacob's comments in the Book of Mormon about the manner of preaching and prophesying among the Jews. And, and Nephi basically saying, I'm not going to do that. It's... It's it's they they make it they make it harder. I'm going to be plain, and that's that's what Nephi says. Nephi says my prophecies are all going to be very plain. Uh, they're not going to be symbolic. They're not going to be, uh, you know, these these acting out things, lying on your side for a year and a half or whatever. Uh, and Jacob learns from Nephi, yeah, because Jacob's sermons are absolutely exquisite and right yep. th- to the point, which makes them 
very compelling in our day and age as well. And of course, it's Jacob who says that the Jews tended to look beyond the mark. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, we, we you need to you need to get back to the mm-hmm. basics here. Mm-hmm. But you do have this first call saying, you know, you need to be firm. You need to talk to him. You're a watchman, uh, and you know, if you 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 need to warn them. And if you warn a wicked man and he dies in his sins. His blood is not on you, which again harkens back to Jacob's uh, sermon at the temple in Jacob 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's lovely, all the different um, ways that described here are, you know, situational, situational, different people, people that are faithful but fall away, people that aren't faithful. At all. So he goes through all of these different, this is very important. And, you know, one of the reasons I love chapter um, 3 so much is because I read it so that I can better understand the mission and the responsibility and calling of President Nelson. Every prophet, and, and we, have, you know, we have 15 prophets on the earth today, um, but, and so as we read this, I would, advi- I would encourage everyone to read it in light of, all right, what is the duty and responsibility of, pro- of a prophet of God on the earth today? And hopefully that will help us better understand that, there are things that he knows he's going to say that's going to bring down the wrath of, you know, Hades upon him. Um, and yet he knows that he is duty bound to God to articulate God's truths on the earth. And so, you know, if we understand, as we begin to understand that better, and we can certainly understand it better, the detail, the explication here of what is re- required of a prophet, it'll help us better understand. And I would suggest support and be grateful for a prophet on the earth today. Do you want to skip ahead to 33? Yep. Let's go. Okay. i got to figure out how to do this quickly. Da, da, da. Sorry, I'm 38. i got to back up a little. Okay, so let's go to the, the Come Follow Me, then skips ahead after 1 through 3 to chapters 33 and 34. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have once again... <coughs> uh, this this is interesting because in chapter three, basically, the Lord is talking directly to Ezekiel and explaining what his mission is going to be. But now he tells Ezekiel to explain to the Jews this role and this mission and says, you know, speak to the sons of your people and say to them. And now he's going to talk about the whole watchman concept and saying they need to understand this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. And uh, we have the watchman, we have the, it's, it pretty much meshes with the same four situations, the wicked who don't repent, the wicked who do repent, mm-hmm. the righteous who stay righteous, the righteous who fall away. Uh, also, for, from a reader's perspective, it's quite interesting that we have all these chapters of Ezekiel, and yet in our Come Follow Me reading, we're reading two chapters that basically reiterate the same theme. That should kind of jump off the page and tell us something to how important it is that we understand, you know, the information in these two chapters for the day that we live in, perhaps. And then we have this key phrase. This is in chapter 11, and I'm reading Robert Alter. Mm -hmm. Say to them, by my life, said the master of the Lord, I do not desire the death of the wicked, but rather the turning back of the wicked from his way that he may live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why should you die O house of Israel. Mm-hmm. And you said chapter 11, verse 11. Excuse me, verse 11, yeah. yeah. Verse 11, verse 11 yeah, chapter 33. Well, Alter puts it really well. Yeah, and, yep. but that's that's the whole point. In other words, 
the watchman isn't there to condemn. The watchman in there is to call everyone to repentance, to warn the righteous and to call the wicked back. Uh, and that's why this is all being explained to the house of Israel. This is how it works. I don't want you to die. I want you to, to turn away from your sins and come back. Mm-hmm. And and he goes right on here in verse um, 15. He says, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he hath robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Repent. I mean, this is the message. This is, to my mind in many respects, obviously it's a testament to Jesus Christ, but the message in the Book of Mormon is to repent, repent, repent. And what has President Nelson told us over and over? Repent on a daily basis basis. We need to repent. If we repent on a daily basis, it's less likely that we're going to go farther and farther astray, isn't it? It's just that simple. And so he talks here about all you have to do is repent of your wicked ways. And then what's fascinating is in verse 21, it says, it came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity, in the 10th month, in the 5th day of the month, uh, one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me saying, the city is smitten. So the city is fallen. So he has spent these last 30 chapters and if you want to read the whole thing it's fascinating but he has spent the last 33 chapters castigating people for their wickedness but now 21 is the hinge where now we're going to move to that looking to the future and the hope and possibility for these people as they repent um, look at verse uh, 29 in verse 29 it says um, um, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be desolate. It says in verse 28, and then said, then shall they know that I am the Lord when I have laid the land most desolate because of all their abominations, which they have committed. And when this cometh cometh to pass, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. All right. So he's laying the groundwork. Now I'm a prophet. Israel has fallen. You've been judged because of the wicked acts that you have committed. And now we're going to pick up this sort of this hopeful message. It certainly is also going to be mixed with a message of warning and a reminder to repent. But we get, you know, we're going to start seeing and particularly the temple imagery here is replete and just absolutely exquisite, particularly for those that worship in temples today. There there are two other passages early on that I'd like to read because they each... uh, deal with challenges first is verse 13 when i say of the righteous he shall surely live and he trusts in his righteousness and does wrong all his righteousness shall not be recalled and for the wrong that he has done he shall die Mm -hmm. it's like okay you can't say i've been good up till now i can do whatever i want and and trust that because i've been doing things fine up till now i can go and do what i want the other one is verse 17 and should the sons of your people say the way of the Lord does not measure up. It is they whose way does not measure up. And that, I think, is very relevant to today's yeah. uh-huh. uh, that's situation. A, that's a pointed dart, isn't yeah. it? The first one is endure to the end. That's the message. Yep. Endure to the end. And that second message is stop thinking you know more than God. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to 34. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lord's going to be, he's going to indict the prophets. 
the prophets that have, excuse me, the leaders in Israel that have led the people up to this period of time and how they have wholly failed in their duty and responsibility to the children of Israel. Now, this is certainly, you know, this certainly aligns itself with Jesus Christ's message throughout the New Testament, doesn't it? The way that the leaders have dragged the people down and they're going to be responsible for that. So when you get one through, oh gosh, at least one through five here, he's going to be indicting these people um, ye eat the fat, you clothe with the wool, ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. You're rapacious, you're greedy, you're oppressing the people, you're teaching them false doctrine, you're leading them carefully down to hell. And the Lord is obviously severely displeased with this kind of behavior. And then he says in verse eight, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd. He says, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. And then he says, for I will, this is in verse 10, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be meat for them. I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. Is that the sweetest? I mean, what a, it's just so beautiful to hear the Lord express how much he loves his children. He knows they've been betrayed. He knows they've been abused. And he is promising, I will never give up on you. I will go to whatever ends are necessary to find you and to rescue you and to bring you back. And that had to be an extremely um, exquisite message for the people, you know, now who have lost their temple. And believe me, all the rights of the Jews are centered around that temple. So they're a kind of a lost and wandering group without those temple rights. They're going to try to kind of recreate them in some respects, but you can't. You just simply cannot. And yet here is this powerful message of hope that the Lord hasn't forgotten them and that he will come and he will rescue them. Keep in mind, too, that the Jews of Jesus' day are going to be extremely familiar with these scriptures. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, my sheep know my voice, uh, when he tells the the parable of the lost sheep and so on, uh, he's he's drawing upon images Mm -hmm. that they're very familiar with, and it is a subtle and sometimes not terribly subtle uh, indictment of the leaders of his day of the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, those who saw themselves as righteous. A lot, of, a lot of his condemnation ties very much into Ezekiel's language and imagery, and <clears throat> the, uh, it's, it's part of the reason they, I think it would enrage them so, because basically he's, he's condemning them by comparing them to what Ezekiel is condemning right here. Mm-hmm. It's lovely, too, that here we get, I mean, I would suggest that thus far in President Nelson's um, role as prophet, he is very much focused on the gathering, isn't he? He's focused on gathering, and here it is, right, in verse 13 of Ezekiel 34, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel. And then beautiful language, you know, I'll feed them in a good pasture. 
Um, they shall lie in the good fold and in a fat pasture. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken, strengthen that which was sick, destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. So there's that beautiful, again, concern and care for the Lord that the Lord has for us. And then, of course, he moves very quickly. And I will, this is verse 23, and I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David, meaning, of course, Jesus Christ. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. And then he talks about covenants. I will make them a covenant of peace. So we have made this beautiful transition. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to gather you. The atonement is real. Jesus Christ will be your shepherd. And then you will have the privilege of making covenants with our Father in heaven that have eternal significance in all of our lives. That's a pervasive theme through the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, is the Lord's promises to Israel. Uh, you actually had in an earlier chapter people mocking and saying, oh, Abraham was just one person. There's a whole bunch of us. We're going to take over this land. Uh, and the Lord makes it clear that he keeps his promises, that he will redeem Israel. He will bring them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> he, you know, sends, he will send in the meridian time. He'll, he, of course, sends his son down. Uh, to work the, his atonement and uh, to preach one more time, you have the <clears throat> the Jews divide between those who accept Christ's message and those who reject it. Uh, those rejected are scattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the uh, transition into a Jewish slash Gentile church, and then you have an apostasy, and we wait another eighteen hundred plus years for restoration and. Mm-hmm. The gathering that's occurring again, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's interesting within our own lifetime. Uh, <clears throat> I joined fifty five years ago at age fourteen. There were less than three million members of the church, and are almost all in the Western U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably ninety percent of the population was Wasatch Front in California, mm-hmm. uh, and now we're we're approaching eighteen million. It's worldwide. The, most explosive growth is outside of the United States, uh, Philippines, you Africa, know, Africa, Latin America, Latin America still. and I think I think Asia is going to start. I wouldn't be surprised to see India and Southeast Asia start to be more and more like the Philippines have been, as far as the conversion goes. As I get older, one of the things I notice is the the long term preparation that Heavenly Father. Um, exacts in people's lives to prepare them for duties and responsibilities and roles that are theirs. And we we can't, we can never forget Elder Nelson, his determination, okay, I'm just going to learn Chinese. I think it was Mandarin. Yeah. I'm going to learn Mandarin so that I can communicate. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to teach them these heart procedures. I'm going to do all these things. He has extraordinary relationships with those people. And I don't think it's without purpose. You know, I'll just kind of leave it there. But I think it's really quite extraordinary. I've seen this over and over. When people get calls to missions, it's like you're so perfectly suited to that call. So here we have, we're going to continue that theme of gathering in verse 36. But what's lovely here is Heavenly Father is going to make very clear he says, I've spoken against Idumea, I've spoken against Edom, I've spoken against those that have oppressed 
um, my children, the children of Israel. I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury because you have borne the shame of the heathen. I have lifted up my hand. The heathen that are about you shall bear their shame. But then he says, I'm going to reunite uh, Israel and Judah in verses 8 and 9. I'm going to renew and restore you. He says, I am for you and I will turn unto you and you shall be tilled and sown and I will multiply men upon you and the shitty city shall be inhabited. And so he describes this beautiful restoration that is going to take place among these people. And it's really quite exquisite. Um, I will do better unto you than at your beginnings. What a sweet promise. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And so here's this promise that you will be reunited. And although you have been defiled, although you have been abused, I have been watching over you and preparing for this day of gathering when you will be restored. And all those blessings that you have so long um, not had will be available to you. Um, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned. Now there's a little bit of castigation there. It's like, I'm doing this. I love you. I have, I've always loved you, but this is for my sake. This is, I keep the promise that I have made. I love my children. It's to me, it's almost like, don't start getting big heads. (laughs) Don't start (laughs) getting big heads here. You know, I'm still in charge. And then I love where we get to 23 through 28, which to me is just riddled with temple imagery. And he says, then, so this is, you know, so so 24, I will take you from among the heathen and will bring you into your own land. All right, you're going to be gathered. But then what happens? Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. I'm not going to go into detail, but I want you to remember the promise in the first portion of the initiatory. This is just exactly, it's just absolutely exquisitely in line with some of those promises. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. So that humble, sweet love of the savior jesus christ will just infuse our beings and that will be well that that's what we, where we will speak that will be the heart of you know of, of us as we and as others come back to the savior jesus christ and then i will put my spirit within you cause you to walk in my statutes keep my judgments and do them and think of all of the covenant making that takes place in the temple and all the promises that we make to heavenly father and all the promises he makes to us and again all of those are embodied. I mean, for me, I love uh, I love administering those initiatory ordinances. But those initiatory ordinances pay attention to the exquisite, to the requirements, and then to the exquisite promises beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. And the Lord's talking about this here. And so he's going to put his spirit in us. He's going to introduce us to his statutes. We are going to make covenants with him. And ye shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. And ye shall be my people and I will be your God. You know, think about third Nephi. Think about fourth Nephi. I mean, third and fourth Nephi. But think about, you know, there never was a happier people on the face of all the earth. And then, of course, in 4th Nephi, we get that turn again, like a dog to his vomit and the sadness that pervades. But that glorious Zion community that is created, and this is the promise here of that beautiful Zion communities. Locksmiths will be out of jobs. (laughs) 
police will be out of jobs, you know, all of those things. But imagine living in a community that is just super infused with love, with the presence of the Savior Jesus Christ, where people keep the covenants that they have made and where their interests are outward rather than inward self-serving and where you look to serve and help others and there is perfect equality among us. It's also interesting compare and contrast this chapter uh, to Isaiah's prophecies of the gathering and the restoration of Israel because they're both talking about the same thing. They use different images. Uh, they use some different language and approaches, mm-hmm. uh, but they're basically describing the same thing. The Lord's ultimate uh, rescuing of Israel, the remnant returning, the gathering of those who have, have persevered and who in the end accept God. And it applies to us because we're all of the house of Israel. We're adopted in at baptism and the gathering and these promises apply to us and the warnings and the cautions apply to us as well. And again, I, I have some concerns about uh, the current generations, uh, and a lot of the uh, uh, drifting away that that I see. Uh, some of it is is active rejection. Some of it is uh, uh, some of it is is sort of a, a spiritual self-satisfaction or laziness it's kind of like yeah you know i I, I go to church on sundays or Mm -hmm. you know maybe i get up and watch it on zoom and so on and so forth but you know i don't have to really worry about this and uh i i worry (laughs) because because i've read so much in the scriptures uh and and i i made a statement to this effect i think it was in ward council today we're talking uh about some of this and uh I said, you know, my concern is that the Lord's response to this is usually to to bring <laughs> some great calamity upon his people to get their attention again. Uh mm-hmm. and I said I'm 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 really sort of worried that something like that may well happen. We may we may have something major uh to, to which, you know, the 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 coronavirus was was just a sort of a mm-hmm. Uh, opening overture, we may have something major that happens to get us to really decide where our loyalty is, where our priorities are, and if we're going to heed the Lord's watchman. I'm bouncing back between the Isaiah chapters that we're reading right now for um, Come Follow Me and then this lesson that we're doing right now. And um, it promises death and destruction and mayhem in the last days. It promises famines. It promises... um, pestilence we can kind of and plagues it promises all of those things wars and rumors of wars and rumors yeah thank you and you know what um in many respects and i'm talking about western you know um western civilization i'm talking about the west and i'm talking about america and you know some of those western societies um this is a generation of young people that have never really lived in want many of them plenty of them have and believe me there is endemic suffering and poverty and um and and hard and hard times among many people in american society today and i don't discount that and it's our duty and responsibility to help them but there are many in the church today that surround me in the church today in the situation in which we live they've never known want and to my mind they have no idea what lies ahead 
And I'm not trying to be a downer, but you know what's interesting? I'm listening. I was listening. I love Elder Maxwell. And I'm listening to some of his speeches again on YouTube and stuff. And to my mind, President Maxwell, Elder Maxwell, was the prophet who promised affliction. He promised affliction. And he talked a lot about it. He called it wintry doctrine. This is wintry doctrine, and yet it is so. You know, let's be honest. Which would you rather? Would you rather not know? Or would you rather somebody tell you there's a cliff ahead? And so he's warning us so that we hopefully don't go off the cliff. But look at what he says, what the Lord says in verse um, 36. He says, um, I will multiply the fruit of the tree. Um, Well, no, let's go to 31. In 31, he says, then shall you remember your own evil ways. So he's going to say in verse 29, I'm going to save you from all your uncleanness. So I'm going, there's going to be challenges in your lives, but I'm going to save you from all uncleanness because I will bring circumstances. This is me here interjecting. But then in verse 31, I will bring difficult challenges, but then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sake do I, do I, do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And so he says it's going to be desolate. It's going to be challenging. But I really think that this generation of faithful or struggling right now members of the church, that God is orchestrating conditions that will help them retrench and reform and become aware of their need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there will be those that will be firm and steadfast all the way through. There will be those that struggle and that leave for some period of time, but circumstances will certainly remind them that there is a God in heaven and that that gospel of the youth that was taught to them, hopefully as children, that they will re-embrace it and they'll become firm and steadfast in the faith. And so I don't know exactly what lies ahead. Nobody does. Well, we kind of do from the scriptures, but we can't give it a timetable or a timeline or anything, and we can't denominate exactly what's going to happen. But there will be challenging times before the second coming of the Savior. But that's where these individuals, these people, these young people, they will be tried in the furnace of affliction. And in that furnace of affliction, they're going to be clenched. They're going to be purified. They're going to be refined. And they're going to come out like gold. And it's going to be exquisite to watch that take place and to see the goodness then that erupts in their lives as they move forward in the cause of Jesus Christ, whatever that may be. And the numbers may always be small. Nevertheless, it, it, I, I, I just kind of see that that's perhaps what lies ahead. At the risk of playing my old geezer card again, my parents were both born in 1924. They grew, they were kids and then teenagers in the depression. <laughs> uh, Mom seems to, my mom seems to have, have actually had a fairly, uh, all things considered, a, a fairly good childhood and so on. But my dad, uh, the depression really impacted him. I mean, he was, he was, as, as a young teenager, he was basically had jobs on the side while going to high school just to buy clothes for himself. Uh, and his father was employed. His father was a longshoreman. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> then uh, went back into the Navy in, I think, 1939. And then my dad decided to see the world and join the Navy in 1941. And six months later, found himself at Pearl Harbor aboard the USS San Francisco. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then went through went, went through Guadalcanal and Guam and 
uh, but spent 30 years in Navy. But the out whole the, time, the out whole of the frying pan. Into oh yeah, the fire. pretty much. But mm-hmm. the whole time I was growing up, I would frequently hear my dad talk about just how rough he saw people have it during the Depression, how mm-hmm. awful it was for so many families. Uh, without enough to eat, without enough to wear, and so on, and 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 he made it clear that a lot of his motivation uh, in life uh, and in his profession was providing for his kids, so we'd never have to go through anything like that. Uh, we we here in North America, and particularly in the United States, tend to think. Uh, be, you know, nothing's going to happen here. Nothing's going to happen. Uh, and there, there are some relatively, uh, I don't want to say simple events, but there, you know, it, the, the, the implications of, of just one very serious, uh, economic or geopolitical event. We don't, I don't think we have a good sense of what the, the, the cascading effect could be. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, uh, and I, I'm not going to start, you know, talking prepper stuff or anything like that, but we, we need to be aware, uh, though I will point out that, that Elder Bednard talked about being prepared and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, 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 <clears throat> I have to agree. And both Chris and I have spent time outside of the U.S. and we've spent time in very impoverished areas. Mm-hmm. We really don't know for the most part what real poverty is here in the U.S., mm-hmm. And uh, we don't know how safe we are. And we don't, yeah, we don't and know how, how unsafe and how quickly the, the how, how quickly societies can destabilize. As a historian, honestly, I could tick off a lot of boxes that are extremely yeah. troubling to my mind of the conditions that we are in right now. We seem to have a surplus. We don't understand supply lines being broken. We don't, oh, we yeah. don't understand any of these things. But we and, should, and, yeah. and, and, and we, we don't realize the tremendous benefit we have mm-hmm. just based on the rule of law yeah. and mm-hmm. property rights. Uh, two things which do not exist in, mu- in much of the rest of the world uh, that we, we just sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we've gotten sort of far afield here. 37. 37. Uh, yes. Vision of bones. The vision of bones. Uh, I'll say one really quickly. The stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph. For all intents and purposes, the Lord here, we're going to talk about it in terms of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, but I think a lot of the inferences here is regarding the reuniting of Judah and of Israel. So they will be reunited as a kingdom. And listen, honestly, if I wanted to have a vision, this Ezekiel vision, this one's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. (laughs) To see these bones all over. It reminds me of, I can't remember, but when I teach in one of my history classes, I have them read this same, and it's a Bedouin vision of this same thing, of this valley of bones that all comes together. But here it is, and here's the Lord telling him that they are going to come together and they are going to live. And then he sees them being, he sees it in verse 8, he sees sinews and flesh come upon them and skin, but no breath unto them, and then they are going to be given life again. And so it's very symbolic, but it's very promissory to the children of Israel that those promises that I have made to you, I will keep the promises I have made. Verse 21, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, 
stink gathering, whether they be gone, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king to them all, Jesus Christ. And they shall be no more two nations, neither that shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, their detestable things, their transgressions. But I will save them out wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them so they shall be my people and I will be their God. It's a reiteration of what we just talked about here. And the promise is so real and then um, David, my servant, shall be, of course, their their king and their leader. And it's it's worth noting here that yeah, because you'll have people say, well, you know, this is, you know, the vision of bones is really just about the gathering of Israel. Yes, it is about the gathering of Israel. Uh, but it uses resurrection imagery. Resurrection is a real thing. <laughs> it's a thing the Lord has always known about. Uh, likewise, with the stick of Judah and Joseph, it is about the reuniting. You have these two kingdoms, which at this point... Both have been dispersed. Uh, Judah will go back. You will have the return under Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. Uh, and they'll hang out there for about another 500 years before they're finally scattered again from the Romans. So, yes, it is about the reuniting, ultimately, of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. But, but it plays also, on both levels. But it's also, yes, it plays on both mm-hmm. levels, which is the nature. You know, I, I, I often marvel that people think God is sort of simple. Like God can't use really complex and multifaceted and multi-layered symbolism. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. no, no, it's just really this. They they tend to dumb down God to a certain extent. Yeah, particularly in those Isaiah chapters. In all of these later chapters here, they're so dualistic in nature. They have multiple applications, and we see that here. Okay, we're going to run out of time in just a second. So 47. 47 is it, and 47 is just this beautiful. For, 47... You know, we're going to get these descriptions, deep, detailed descriptions of rebuilding the temple. But here in verse 47, the Lord is going to describe, you know, what is going to happen in that temple when it is built. Um, And he's going to talk about the Lord's going to bring me to the door of the house and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. And then he's going to say they're going to move here. They're going to move there. They're going to basically replenish. These waters are going to be life giving waters that are go- they're going to restore Israel and what was desert, make it, you know, beautiful and um, plenteous and um, agriculturally productive. And, you know, when all is said and done, the Lord here is again describing the value and the blessings that come with temple worship and the keeping of covenants with our Father in heaven. And so this, to me, is symbolically descriptive of the kind of life-giving water that happens in the temples of our God that happens in Jesus Christ's house. Of course, how can it not be so? And, I mean, to wrap it up, Ezekiel, once again, much much like Isaiah, prophecies of the near future, prophecies of the far future. Uh, and there's no problem and no issue with us saying, yeah, this is our interpretation of the Valley of Bones or of the stick of Judah and Joseph. Uh they, they can actually have multiple interpretations. But I think the most important lesson is what Chris has been stressing, which is the role of a prophet. And I think that's probably as important now as it has ever been. And I think a lot of the struggles that we see among some members of the church is that they have a hard time understanding it. And that ends our first hour. We will see you after the break for the second hour of the Interpreter Radio Show. Chris Fredrickson and Bruce Webster, see you after the break. <laughs> 